Wojtek Frykowski and uh, J.C. bring smoked pot sometimes. I saw them doing it. In my house were parties where people did smoke pot. And I must tell you furthermore that I was not at a Hollywood party where somebody didn't smoke a pot. Listen, living, listening to Synchronon. Sick and wrong. Yes, you're listening to Synchronon. The Sick and Wrong, the world source for antisocial commentary. God, what a bunch of scumbags. Good evening. Welcome to Sick and Wrong, the world source for antisocial commentary. I'm on your host, E. Simon. Hi, I'm your co pilot, Kate Rambo. Okay, Rambo. Hello. I wish you were the co-pilot that's flying my plane back to L.A. this weekend. Why do you want that? I can't fly a plane, D. It would surely crash. And don't. Don't call me Shirley. Shirley. <laughs> hey, D, do you like gladiator movies? I do. You ever seen a grown man naked? Hope Lenny. <laughs> um, no, I'm traveling back to L.A. this weekend, and it's a veritable nightmare. Uh, traveling is a nightmare at the minute anyways. It's insane. The, the fucking train lines are on strike. I'm kind of stranded up here in the north of England right now. Well, I mean, the train line thing is going to go on until after Christmas, they say. Because they're just not going to stop striking. Why can't the government just say, here you go, here's your pay yeah, rise? Why don't they give them more money? Well, everyone deserves more money and more pay. And uh, like more power to them for like actually getting it together, actually going through the unions and full-on striking. Like, fucking good for yous. We're the fucking scabs. I got to leave at like 5 a.m. now. On a Saturday morning, and then take this bizarre, circuitous route with like three changes before I get to fucking London. At like what, one in the afternoon? Yeah, no, it's like six and a half hours, almost seven hours on a train. Well, it's the only train I could get. We we need our trains. I don't know why the government's pussyfooting about it. Just give them what they fucking want. Your country's fucked right now. It's in turmoil. You got rail strikes. You got a heat wave. You got a drought. You got impending energy and garbage strikes. Yeah, it's nineteen. It's the nineteen seventies all over again. I am waiting for there to be some good fucking music coming soon. You know, you guys should never have canceled Boris. He had a plan to make England great again. It was called Mega. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously, I'm dreading Heathrow. I'm just dreading the the whole travel. I, tra- uh, yeah, traveling is just tough. That's oh, going to suck. And then there's monkeypox on top of it. What? what? I have the monkeypox. No, monkeypox is everywhere. So now it's like, and you get it by touching things, like by si- sitting on like a movie theater seat. Oh, right. Oh, by, God. you know, giving a man a rim job. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny because I was looking at, I was talking to my brother about it because it's, it's actually kind of hard to get a vaccine. For monkeypox. Oh, is it? I've been seeing loads of people going and having. I, I think if you're not a promiscuous gay man, it's kind of hard to get a vaccine, at least in the states. Well, can everyone just pretend that they're pr- promiscuous gay men and go and well, get I, it? My brother told me that he just got vaccinated for it. The doctors at the clinic asked him. They they, they asked him if he had had sex with more than three men in that past week, and my brother looked at him and was like, "I've had sex with more than three men today." <laughs> And so they're like, okay, we're going to give you a double dose yeah, of the we're vaccine. Gonna triple it up for you, <laughs> Shaggy. Um, so uh, this past Wednesday uh, was the uh, the anniversary of the murders in Cielo Drive. I've been celebrating all week. Kate's personal holiday. It's Kate's Christmas. This is my Christmas. Is. Yeah, I was on the um, the Deaf Hugs group. 
sharing all my pictures from all my times. Apart from I didn't share, you know, when I got called a grave desecrator when I was laying you down. You didn't share that sharing. one again? I, no, I shared that on my personal stories because, you know, <laughs> I, I still don't see how it's grave desecration. I gave her a little kiss and I laid on her grave. Yeah, I think she. I think she'd be honored personally. I personally would be honored if after I died, there were like chicks coming and laying over me and giving me smooches. I'd be she like, I've getting done all s- slutty on your grave. Yeah. I'd, I'd love it Wouldn't personally. You be, I'd be like, I've done something good in life. I kind of want to get like one of those lap dance poles like right on my grave. That would actually suit you. Play <laughs> here lies deep. Play yeah, something they, they dancing like, spin Simon. On the pole, yeah, one of those stripper poles. So after midnight, August 9th, nineteen sixty nine, uh, members of Charles Manson's cult killed um well five people but four people five total that night but four people in movie director roman polanski's beverly hills california home uh including polanski's eight-month pregnant wife actress sharon tate celebrity hairstylist jay sebring roman's friend uh Wojtek frykowski and uh coffee heiress abigail folger and you're forgetting stephen parent don't forget about stephen well, that's parent. what i'm saying the uh, the one that was not in the home was an 18 year old kid. Really unfortunate, unfortunate timed uh, you know what? Uh, Poo, murder there. Pooh is Stephen Parent because he was apparently a really nice, shy kid. He's ginger. 18 years 18, old. And Poor like kid. shot in his car. And all he was doing was going to the back to see his mate to see if he yeah. wanted to buy his stereo. He had been, yeah, he was selling audio equipment to the uh, state's caretaker. And so he was just visiting him in the car, wrong place, wrong time, and he gets shot by uh, Tex Watson. Poor guy. Ah, poor guy. Didn't even, you know, that sucks. Anyway, you know, been, you've been talking about it this whole week, and so I've, I've been thinking it. about these murders, just ruminating, you know, about their uh, death anniversary this week. It made me think, are they the lucky ones, Kate? Because they're dead, yes. The dead are the lucky. Well, think about it. They didn't have to deal with train strikes, inflation, <laughs> Donald Trump, Joe Biden's dementia, Elon Musk's weird face. Um, Pete Davidson and, and Kim Kardashian's breakup. That I think that might have ended them had they survived and lived a normal life. I think that would have been the news that broke their camel's backs. Well, I think what the worst would have been for them to open up their phone today and to see uh, Tommy Lee's syphilitic dick on Instagram. Uh, right. By syphilitic, do you mean perfect? Everyone Sy- isn't... Do you know how many venereal diseases are on that dick? Of course. He's Greek. Yeah, he's that's a, disgusting. Yeah, but I mean, his dick is pretty much like a, a perfect specimen of dickhood. Yeah, covered in syphilis, sure. But they didn't have to see that because they're dead. Think about it. I think they might be the lucky ones. Well, that's what they say. Although I'm pretty sure they would disagree with you with the horrible way they died. <laughs> anyway, speaking of that, there are several major theories. Uh, some conspiracy theories, some uh, proven theories about why the Manson family committed the, uh, the, the Tate murders that fateful night. Um, one of these that's lesser known, but very interesting to both me and Kate, is the drug burn theory. I'm going to get a head up during this episode. It all happened because of a drug deal gone awry. I'm already walking out the door right now, angrily. Well, we'll find out about that in a couple minutes. But first, I want to thank all the uh, listeners out there who've been supporting us on Patreon all this time. You know, it's been rough on Patreon the past few weeks, you know. It, what's crazy is the downloads of the show have skyrocketed recently. Yeah, we have. Hello to all the new listeners. Yeah, no, it's amazing. It's like we've been getting these huge downloads. I don't think it has anything to do with Hunter Moore. I don't. (laughs) I really don't. But we've been getting a lot of, and the Netflix stock, but we've been getting a lot of downloads, but not many patrons. 
Join our Patreon. It's the place to be. Exactly. We got so much going on. If you like the show, if you like what we do here, throw us a few bucks. Join up for Patreon. You get our entire second show, and you get all the bonus features. You get the outtakes. And then, and then you can feel good because we're using that money to pay for advertising, hosting fees, and all the other expenses, you know, for the show. That, that keeps. Yeah. I mean, that keeps this plane in the sky. It keeps us going. We, we, it really does. And we, we appreciate you helping us keep it sick and wrong. So here's a quick Patreon promo. And that's, then, then let's uh, get into uh, whether Sharon Tate and her friends are murdered because of a drug burn. Hi, guys. Stuart here. I'm just calling in to get this off my chest. All you listeners out there, why are you not signing up for the Patreon? Seriously, these two fine people do the show next to having a regular job, and you don't feel the need to support them. So sign up to the Patreon today. You're not helping a Jew through college, but through his midlife crisis. And Kate is packing her shit to live in California. Both of these things are not cheap. They give so much and ask for so little. So do it now and keep the show going. D and Kate, you're doing a great job. Love you guys. Stuart out. Well, it's August, which can only mean one thing. And for me, it's my Christmas month. I don't celebrate Christmas, but I certainly celebrate Manson Murder Month. Seriously, she does for an entire month. Yeah, for the last 22 years, I've reread or I've cracked the spine of Helter Skelter. I actually haven't started reading it yet because I'm just finishing up a John Fante book, but I'll be banging into that this weekend. And Helter Skelter is a definitive tome of... Charles Manson and his hateful hippie crew by the prosecutor and the author, uh, Vincent Bugliosi. For a lot of people, myself included, it was this book that first made us turn on, tune in, and drop into the world of true crime. Was it yours? What was your first true crime book? I think it was In Cold Blood. That's it. It's usually Helter Skelter or In Cold Blood, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think it was In Cold Blood. I read that, ooh, I'd say like sophomore year of high school. I read that just after Helter Skelter. Yeah, I read Helter Skelter in high school, too. So Helter Skelter, from its iconic opening lines about it being so quiet that you could hear the ice cube shaking in the cocktails down the canyon, to the gory black and white pictures that left something to the pre-internet imagination. Like, it, we wanted to see more. The book is well-written, it's captivating, ultimately horrifying, as it spins a web that you would never conceive of. Or some people would have you believe that. Well, that's a thing. I mean, that, that book blew minds when it came out. And yeah, it's an amazing book. And, and the definitive uh, tome on, uh, on the Manson murders. Yeah, I can't think of a better written book about the murders. I do like jo- um, John Gilmore's Garbage People. That's probably my other favorite. I don't know if I've read that. I love John Gilmore. I love what about all his The books. Family? But don't get me started. <laughs> I love The Fugs, but I don't like Ed Sanders. For those that have been here a long time, they'll know how I feel about conspiracy theories. But for those that are new here, hello, I'm Kate Rambo, and I can't fucking stand conspiracy theories. I've actually, there's nothing that kind of irks me more or grinds my gears. I don't know what it does. It triggers me. I've never once heard a conspiracy theory and thought, oh, that makes sense. I'm a believer now. Do you believe in any? Kate, you know what this, is? You know what this means? What? You can't handle the truth. <laughs> See, I can handle the truth, and that's why I don't believe in conspiracy theories. <laughs> you know, there are people out there that are convinced that the COVID was fake, the moon landing was a sham, Oswald was an agent of the CIA, frogs are gay, and that jet fool doesn't melt steel beams. And the U.S. election was stolen. <laughs> was rigged. And there's many a conspiracy surrounding the Manson family, so I'm going to get het up, passionate, and together we're going to uncover the myths and legends that surround America's most famous family. 
There is no doubt that Charles Manson, the hippie messiah who claimed to be the devil, Christ and Hitler in one, dispatched his spawnlings to go out and leave something witchy behind on the nights of August 8th and 9th in 1969, killing the summer of love and nine people. But before anyone opens up their keyboards and starts angrily typing, telling me to go read Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA and the secret history of the 60s, I actually think this book has started a lot of the more modern conspiracies surrounding the family. I would say, yeah, one of the, you know, one of the more uh, famous ones. Definitely. Tom, who is one hell of an affable guy, was an entertainment reporter. There's your first red flag. In 1999, and he was on assignment to write about how the Tate LaBianca's murders changed Hollywood. Well, what turned into a three-month assignment quickly became a two-decades-long obsession, which is a very easy trap to fall into. And he spent countless hours researching, interviewing, putting his own spin on things, which eventually would lead him to the courthouse. To say that Tom hates Vincent Bugliosi is putting it mildly. He even goes so far as to claim that he's a kind of wife abuser. But before that, he claims that Bugliosi, love him or hate him, tampered with witnesses, which in turn led to Bugliosi threatening to sue the destitute Tom O'Neill for $100 million, and he called him a gay pedophile. Whether you like Bugliosi or not, though, his is one of the most extraordinary prosecution theories in criminal history. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was mostly dreamt up by Bugliosi. The case against Manson you know, centers on his contention that he was a homicidal racist who ordered his followers to commit mass murder in order to start an apocalyptic race war in America. Well, it wasn't dreamt of. There's plenty of hard evidence to prove that that's but what it was, was But doing. I think that was primarily Bugliosi spurring that, that, uh, that belief. Right, a health skelter. Yeah. And, you know, th- those that died were, were portrayed as indiscriminate and unlucky victims, just randomly picked by some crazy drug-fueled murderous hippies. Manson's kind of randomly picked. Well, it, they, they basically make it seem like they were randomly picked. And so after starting this race war, and this is why I have a, a hard time fully buying into the helter-skelter theory, if you will. So after starting this race war, Manson and his followers would then eventually merge in the aftermath as rulers of the world with the remaining black population as their slaves. Those are cults believe in fucking shite like that, though. I know, but that, that, this cults. is kind of hard to buy. But the jury bought it, and uh, Manson and the murders were all found guilty and uh, subsequently sentenced to death. Now, it does seem strange, though, because Manson it wasn't seriously mentally disturbed. He was never, like, they never tested him and said, this guy is completely insane. In fact, he had a above-average IQ. Yeah, he has a normal he, IQ. Above average, 121. Yeah, but he's fucking illiterate and he never finished school. And he definitely plays an insane person on TV. He grew up in the prison system, so he's probably going to be like wiser than some because he's, all he does is sit and observe humankind. And not that I'm disagreeing with what Bugliosi contends here, but a, a lot of his evidence comes from Linda Kasabian. Not all of his evidence. A, if you're talking portion. about, yeah, the trial, a lot of his evidence, she was the star witness. Yeah. But it wasn't just her. There was plenty of the other Manson family members who maybe didn't testify, but were, in, you know, part of the investigation who, like, corroborated. But she was more directly involved in the murders. Well, yeah, she was there. But she was offered immunity to testify against him. And I don't blame her, because I would have, well, too. I think it but was in also, her self-interest. There was also Susan Atkins confessing in uh, prison as well. But I think Linda Kasabian was offered a deal, and it was in her self-interest to tell Bugliosi what he wanted to hear, however insane it might sound. 
You know, I mean, it sounds kind of insane that this but, guy was like, I'm going to lead my slaves when I come out after the apocalyptic race war. Of course it sounds insane, but all dooms... I've never once had a doomsday cult where I'm like, I can really get behind this, Mr. Applewhite. I don't know if, like, it was a complete doomsday cult. Well, it is a doom, because they were going to crawl into a hole in the ground, wait for the the war, the race war to start, and then they would emerge the victors. Regardless, Bugliosi became world famous off this off this case. He did. And he would frequently refer to himself as the man who prosecuted Charles Manson when promoting his books and his political ambitions. Wouldn't you? Because I fucking would. Well, I'm just saying he profited greatly off this. And though Manson acts like an insane person, definitely, but he was completely aware that he was uh, railroaded by a very ambitious prosecutor. And he, quote, this is Manson, quote, I was convicted of witchcraft in the 20th century, and my case made the prosecutor, Vincent Bugliosi, filthy rich behind the book and the film that he wrote. And good for him, because wouldn't you cash in? They all cash in. I'm just saying that there seems to be a, a bit of an agenda there. Like, I think he needed a prosecution like this. He needed a, to quash any other theories in order to push this prosecution and get these people put on, on death row and then come out a hero. Well, it was going to happen anyways. They, they obviously did the murders. Well, they definitely it, did the murders. Yeah, but it was getting it to the point where he could get a death uh, conviction for them. But I'm just saying there are other possible theories out there. <laughs> I'm going to get so annoyed. As outlandish as Helter Skelter. <laughs> So this is a quote from Chaos about when Tom first met Vincent. He says, my task was to press him on some of his conduct in the Manson trial. There are big holes in Helter Skelter. There's contradictions, omissions, and discrepancies with police reports. The book amounts to an official narrative that few have ever thought to question. But I found troves of documents, many of them unexamined for decades and never before reported on, that entangled Vince and a host of other major players like Manson's parole officer, his friends in Hollywood, the cops and the lawyers and the researchers, and the medical professionals surrounding him. Among many things, I had evidence in Vince's own handwriting that one of his lead witnesses had lied under oath. So Tom isn't a Manson, a Manson apologist by any means. He believes he's an evil fucker, certainly capable of murder. But he does believe that FBI agents were in cahoots with the DA under Tom's assumption that J. Edgar Hoover wanted to weaponize the brutality of Manson and his sex slaves. All right, that's more outlandish than Helter Skelter. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely up there. Uh, Tom dug into why Manson's parole officers were so lax of him leading up to the 1969 murders. Hint, they weren't. You can go back and see they did everything to kind of like you would expect for him because he wasn't a violent criminal. He broke federal laws, but he wasn't a violent criminal. Well, he was always segregated from uh, General Pop, though. In uh, Yeah, some places he was. Well, because uh, don't you think he'd be a target? Oh, you mean afterwards? Yeah. After 1969. I'm talking about pre-1969, oh, oh, okay, okay, before okay. this. Yeah, he was never a violent criminal. He stole cars. Yeah, he stole he cars, drove them yeah. across petty lines. Criminal. He's a petty criminal. Yeah. And Tom says that while he was living in the psychedelic gulch of Heat Ashbury, Manson may have been used as a guinea pig or a lab rat by a bent doctor <laughs> who recommended LSD to the government as a means of mild mind control that could penetrate the heads of informants or prepare so-called Mancunian candidates for service abroad as spies or assassins. Okay, you would MK never pick Ultra. Manson. Okay, MK Ultra. Yeah, that would be the last person you would pick. <laughs> totally. Back in Los Angeles, did Manson employ the same methods to program his uh, murderous surrogates? I d well, yeah, he certainly gave them LSD, but we've, we did that episode on the, uh, the process church. 
Um, oh, yeah, I don't remember when we did that. That was like uh, roughly a year ago. That was a great episode. Yeah. Um, and months Interesting, and, a satanic, I mean, more or less a satanic cult. Yeah, and Munson stole a lot of ideas from them. He stole a lot of ideas from Scientology. He like cracked open how to win friends and influence people. He knew what he was doing. And so we know this. He doesn't need the CIA or J. Edgar Hoover barking orders at him. And it's usually Occam's razor, isn't it? But this doesn't sit well with Tom, who even manages to link Manson to the JFK assassination, because why not at this point? And his utter belief that the government is lying to you, Blousey is that lying to you, no one is safe when you can read behind the lines, right? At this point, this guy's just pushing insane conspiracy His own to agenda. sell books. But I think he's just doing it to sell books. Well, I think, no, I think he's doing it because I truly believe he believes these Manson theories. But what he's accusing Bugliosi of, he's also doing the exact same thing. Yeah, exactly. And he can't no, see I the mean, irony in he's that. He's profiting off of this. But I think if you're going to write a book in 1999 about Manson, you got to have a twist. you got to do something different. And I think that's True. what he's trying to do. We all know that Manson was an abused child from an abused home. He had been in and out of reform school. He wasn't a scholar. He wasn't a saint. He was a jailhouse sodomizer, one who picked up teachings from Scientology and the Process Church, a lifer who lived prison in and outside of the cells with teachers like Creepy Carpus as his uh, <laughs> scholars. I did a Creepy Carpus on the uh, patron. Not you did an overkill on him, right? Yeah, I, yeah, Alvin Carpus is one of my favorites. When we went to Alcatraz and saw all his stuff, I was like super excited. Yeah, they did. They had like his uh, his belongings, like preserved in his cell. Yeah, fucking a great man for those who don't know him. <laughs> but you're right, though. A more accurate description of Charles Manson is not cult leader, but petty criminal. A pimp. He spent most of his life in and out of prison with small scale, like small time offenses, stealing cars, burglaries, fraud. But the actual fact is that Manson was first arrested after the murders was because he and his gang yeah. at the Spawn Ranch had been stealing cars. Dune That's what buddy. they were first arrested for. So, like I was saying, perhaps Tom's biggest flaws in all his theories is that he is actually the biggest nut in the Fruit Loaf, leading a 20-year quest looking for truth that isn't actually out there. He's a lonely, obsessive, hoarding Manson articles from long, out-of-date books and magazines, something that me and Harrison can relate to. He had 190 binders filled with notes, four feet high stacks of extra research covering his flaw. The book ends with no definitive ending. It ends in chaos itself, a secret history that isn't really secret, even if some of it might be true. And the one cuckoo theory that might hold water is that the police's original theory to the gory, gory murders of Sharon Tate and her friends, the drug burn theory, mm-hmm. which is focused around victim Wojtek Frykowski, who was brutally murdered alongside his girlfriend, Abigail Folger, that same night in a Cielo Drive. Uh, Wojtek Frykowski was born in Lutz, Poland. I love Poland. On December the 22nd, 1936. He's one of three sons to a textile entrepreneur, Jan Frykowski, and his wife, Teofilia Stefanowska. Yeah? I don't even know how to say that. But uh, Teofila is a... like it's a great name. He's nearly like T-fell or something. <laughs> Teofila. Teofila. The year he was born should tell you enough about what was incurring at Poland at the time. When he was about three years old, the Nazis invaded Poland, and soon war just broke out all over Europe. The family relied on their millions during the war. Wojtek went to university in Warsaw. He got a degree in chemistry. That's might come in handy for him later. <laughs> and although he was expected to join his father's business, he preferred to spend his time hanging around with filmmakers. Because there was um, like a, a scene of independent filmmakers of, in Poland at this time. 
it was like it was like a happening thing. What in like the fifties? No, it's like the thirties. Thirties well, and forties. He would have been nineteen thirty-six. Oh, yeah, been sorry, kid. the the forties and fifties. So must like the forties or fifties. Yeah. Was Vitek Frankowski Jewish? Frankowski? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. You never see the little. Well, because that's the star thing you, you hear about Polanski. Didn't, right. didn't fare so well during the uh, the no. Holocaust and uh, during uh, World War Two, but Farkowski's going to university. You know, it's like it's, 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 it seems Jewish. like it seems like his family was doing all right. <laughs> yeah, he was a troublemaker in school. He often got into fights, and he once nearly decked uh, one day problematic yet brilliant filmmaker Roman Polanski, who was born as Roman Liebling. Like you said, Roman had not fared as well during the war. He was the only member of his family not captured by Nazis, and his mother, who was pregnant at the time, she was slaughtered in Auschwitz. Roman spent his childhood living on the streets as a virtual orphan or hiding in the countryside where poor but kindly farmers would hide the boy, which is very similar to the book Painted Bird. Yeah, great book. I haven't seen the film yet. Uh, It's horrifying. At a school dance, Polanski was working the door, and he wouldn't let Wojtek in. Words were exchanged, nearly fists, but Wojtek controlled his temp- temper that night. He walked away. The Polish scene is small, and a few weeks later, they were both in a bar. Wojtek bought Roman a drink, and they became really good friends after that. This is a quote about Wojtek from the Ladies' Home Journal. Uh, the article is titled The Sharon Tate Murders by Peter Maus in April 1970. Frykowski was a national junior swimming champion in Poland. He was a short, powerfully built man whose toughness was legendary among his friends. In communist Poland, Frykowski was that rarity, the son of a millionaire whose money had reportedly come from black market operations. He cut a stylish, almost Hemingway-esque figure in Warsaw's literary and movie world. He had plenty of cash and he spent it freely on sports cars, on the latest Western fashions and on his friends. Wherever he was and whatever his situation, there were two constants about Frykowski. Men liked him immensely, and women were enchanted by him. Wow, he's like the Polish Hugh Hefner. He's a cat. I probably would have been rolling around with him. He had the dosh to finance one of Roman's earliest films, and this is really when they became besties. Roman said, beneath his tough exterior, Wojtek was good-natured, soft-hearted to the point of sentimentality, and utterly loyal. In 1958, when he was 20, he married a Polish model. And they had a son who was, uh, um, what, Bartolomaj, nicknamed Bartek later that year. But Wojtek was young, hot-headed, running around enjoying life. They divorced, and then he married uh, another woman in 1963. You like how I'm avoiding saying their names? I, I don't even I'm looking at this. It's all <laughs> consonants. I don't even know how you'd say it. Um, in 1963. That marriage was also doomed, and they divorced as well after a couple of years. So um, when I read that he had children, I did like a little like research into his child uh, Bartek who actually sued and won against Guns N' Roses I heard about this actually yeah I really like Spaghetti Incident uh, Spaghetti Incident I was like 15 when I first heard that album it's all covers yeah and I don't think it's bad he um, so Bartek graduated from the cinematography department at the Polish National Film Theater and Television School in Lutz. he had two daughters one of whom is famous for going on the Polish version of Big Brother so that's how they all know the Frykowskis in Poland but he committed suicide or was murdered by stabbing himself in the stomach at the mansion of his friend on uh, the 7th of June, 1999. Wow, that's when Bartek died? Yeah, so, I mean, father and son both died by stabbing. Wow. I, you know, I heard about the uh, the Guns N' Roses thing. Did he sue Guns N' Roses or did he sue the Manson estate? Because I think Manson was going to get royalties. 
he sued, for that song, and I think he sued for that money. Yeah, he sued both. And I know that after the murders, he got money as well from Manson. Yeah, I, I thought he sued the Manson estate for, for the royalties for that song, song on that album. We just know that Guns N' Roses got into trouble. They got into big trouble when they did that song. So we'll go back to the doomed Wojtek. By 67, he was living in Paris. He was living it up. And he ended up going to New York. And at a party, he met the equally doomed Abigail Folger. They had a lot in common. Abigail Alf and Folger, she grew up in wealth and privilege in San Francisco as the heiress to the Folger's Coffee fortune. What's Folger's Coffee like? We don't have it. I got I to gotta correct you here. It's Folger's. Folger's. Well, I don't yeah. have it. Folger. What's Folger's Coffee like? Fol- Folger's Coffee is kind of generic coffee. Is it? It's che- it's usually pretty cheap, but it's just kind of like generic packaged coffee. But it's it's kind of the coffee everyone had. Like my parents had Folgers. That's yeah. the first coffee I ever drank was Folgers. Right. It was just kind of like that generic coffee that you buy in a jar. I was his Nescafe. I would say then. Yeah, we have Nescafe too, but Folgers and Nescafe are pretty much the same. Right. She attended private high school in Carmel and was a 1961 debutante on the San Francisco Social Register. She went on to attend Radcliffe College in Cambridge, and then she went to Harvard, graduating with honors in art history. I mean, she's so wealthy. She could, she could just go to school indefinitely. Right. I mean, I she mean has, it's not like she has to work. And her degree is about as useful as my degree, or your degree. <laughs> well, she doesn't need one. Do you, do you, it's, it's kind of unfathomable to realize how much money the Folgers family must have. Yeah, she then moved to New York to work for a magazine publisher. And although she couldn't speak Polish and Wojtek couldn't speak much English, they both spoke really good French. And they both enjoyed the Australian tongue, too. Do you know what it means? An Australian kiss. No, what does that mean? It's a kiss down under. <laughs> the, uh, so within a week, Wojtek was living with Abigail. And in the spring of 68, they drove Costco cross-country to California, and they rented a home at 2774 Woodstock Road in Laurel Canyon across the street from Mamacas. Wojtek hit up his old bestie, Roman. They would hang out when Roman was in town, because, I mean, Roman's insanely busy at this point. And Wojtek spent his days writing Polish poetry. He did odd construction jobs, odd jobs on film sets, but mostly he relied on the money that Abigail got from the Folgers fortune every month. Yeah, why not live off that? She was living off it, so he can live off it. And he had some money, too. He's got a sugar mama. It's the best deal a man can have. Well, he still had some money from his uh, milli- his Polish millions, despite the fact that he may be seen as a leech. There are multiple reports about how hard he was working and the numerous efforts he took to make a living for himself. After all, he had come from wealth, and he still had his own money, too. And he may have invested his money, and he may have invested Abigail's money, too, into the emerging MDA a.k.a. Sally Market. Tell well, us about MDA. Also called Sassafras. So, Sassafras. Yeah. And which I've actually, I mean, I've done it a few times. I've never done it. I thought Sassafras was what um, he drinks in, uh, what Sam Elliott drinks in the Big Lebowski. No, I mean, that is, Sassafras is a drink too. Oh, right. Yeah. So it's the same thing. No, it's, it's. I think Sassafras. I thought it was like, oh, no, I'm thinking of Sazerac. Actually, I don't know. I know Sassafras is a drug. I've had it. It's like a, it's a metabolic remnant kind of it's metabolized from mdma okay or vice versa but i don't think people were doing mdma at the time it existed but i don't think it was like a big party drug at the time that's a german drug you know invented in world war one mdma oh was it yeah for the soldiers you know i didn't even i mean i remember when i was in high school it was definitely around it wasn't that big of a deal till i got to college like you know like uh, early 90s 
we had ecstasy. Like I'd ne- I never took MDMA until like um God, my like maybe mid twenties. We just had a little ecstasy that you. Yeah, we had tons of ecstasy, but we also, I mean, we we could get Molly too. Mitzi Turbo, no, we could never get Molly. Was just not a thing. We had Mitzi Turbos, mate, and it was good times. But sassafras, you don't find sassafras. as often. But it's a man-made recreational drug noted noted for its stimulant and psychedelic properties. So it's more of a hallucinogen, and it's been used since the sixties. Very popular then as a clubbing and sex enhancing substance Mm. similar to lsd and mdma visual hallucinations euphoria heightened feelings of intimacy mdma definitely is a little more like sexual yeah it's more like like nice yeah it's more like uh you you definitely have more like touch is enhanced and things like that this is more like a a speed Uh, i wouldn't say speed you're hallucinating you feel good it's it's definitely like that that feeling a euphoric feeling. Do you think this is like oh, I always wish I could have been alive during the t- times of quaaludes? Do you think this is like kind of more quaaludey? No, because uh, you definitely oh, it's you an get upper. Because the thing is with quaaludes yeah. though, quaaludes are like a barbiturate. It's like kind of a downer, but you feel great. Yeah, you feel sexy. Um, so this is uh, MDMA. MDA was known on the street as Sally, and uh, um, and sassafras, or called sass drug, or simply sass. Because it's made from the uh, saffron oil that comes from the sassafras Sandy. plant. It's considered a hallucinogen. Um, you know, it's interesting. December 2015, little fun fact here. The body of Scott Whelan, former lead singer of the Stone Temple Pilots, uh, was found dead on a tour bus in Bloomington, Minnesota. Uh, Wyland struggled with addiction for decades, but his, his death has been ruled as an accidental overdose from a combination of drugs. Heroin, obviously, but also MDA. Oh, right. So yeah. he could find some in Minnesota. That's probably what they got there because it's such a throwback state. Well, I, I imagine that guy was taking any drug. Friends of Mama Cass, they've claimed that Wojtek was actually offered the exclusive dealer's rights to doling out the MDA at the hit parties of L.A. Yeah, right. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've read about this. And Wojtek definitely uh, plays a pretty key role here in the drug burn theory, mm-hmm. along with Tex Watson and Jay Sebring. And so the police initially, after the murders, looked at the narcotic aspects because they found a lot of drugs at the scene. Not a lot of drugs. Yeah, they found a good portion. I'll list them off a little later. But they found, you know, a number of drugs. And so, you know, and it points to kind of a credible explanation than, you know, apocalyptic race war. You know, it's, it makes it sound like, okay, these guys had some drugs. Somebody ripped them off and took their drugs. It just makes sense. Maybe it's a little too easy. But definitely Occam's Razor says that's pr- probably how it happened. Right. But anyway, uh, an author who you hate, Nicholas Schrack. <laughs> Do hate him. He wrote, a, he wrote a, a tome on the Manson family called The Manson File. And he believes that the Cielo Drive murders were a drug burn. He's probably the biggest proponent of that theory. I think he is. I think he's the guy who kind of started this. I definitely think he's one. I mean, this this theory has been around for a while because mm-hmm. you know police looked into it. Yeah, it was and the first thing they did. Dropped it for some reason, but you know one of uh, Nicholas Shrek asserts that Tex Watson's attempt to muscle in on a big drug deal occurring at Cielo Drive might have turned into the brutal murder spree, right. or at least precipitated it. So, according to his research in the Manson file. Uh, what transpired at Cielo Drive in the early hours of August 9th, 1969, was the consequence of a turf war between a small-time drug dealer, Tex Watson, and established MDA suppliers, Wojtek Frykowski, celebrity hairstylist Jay Sebring. Uh-huh. 
It was a lucrative Hollywood drug scene. I think all these guys were trying to take a piece of it. Uh-huh. <laughs> At least this is what Nicholas Schreck's theory yeah. seems to say. So Sebring and Frykowski have both been named by several authors over the years as suppliers of narcotics to actors and musicians in Hollywood. They took drugs. They supplied drugs. A lot of celebrities. They knew a lot of celebrities. They had the connections. Yeah, but so did all these other people. Like Mama Cass was also a drug supplier of people. So you could say but the I same wonder for Jim if Morrison. Mama Cass, you know, maybe she just invested in it. These guys actually distributed that's where you're making the money. You become a drug dealer when you just give someone any drugs. Like, I've been a drug dealer. Well, there's, there's a drug dealer, and then there's a distributor. And I think that's what Vitek aspired to be. Do you think? Oh, no, it's entrapment if the police cr- try and come for me for saying that I was a drug dealer. It's entrapment. Yeah, I've seen can't that film. prove anything. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, as you said, Mama Cass, Steve McQueen, as well as Polanski and Tate, they all, and the house at Cielo Drive appeared to be a base for some of the partying and the drug dealing at the time. I highly doubt Sharon Tate was taking any drugs or distributing. Same for Roman Plansky. These are, you're talking about two insanely busy people at this time. Insanely busy, but Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate definitely party, especially Roman Polanski. That guy banged so many women. Polanski partied, but yeah, that, Sharon Tate was in, like not like that. And at the time, everyone was doing like you know uppers, downers. Dr- I mean, drugs were just like it was a scene. Whoa, you've seen Black Beyond Betty. the Belly of the Dolls. <laughs> I have. Um, so police originally suspected drugs because it makes sense. And you think it's like, you know, a, a, a cut and dry case because you're just like, oh, OK, these guys are involved with drugs and they're trying to get ripped off. And, but the drug burn theory originated from various sources and some of them still circulate today and suggest that Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski, you know, were heavily into drugs, the occult, mm-hmm. wild sex orgies mm-hmm. and Satanism, satanic parties. Um, and they say that that Wojtek Frykowski was preparing to become the exclusive L.A. area distributor of a new amphetamine, MDA, with a financial backing of his wealthy girlfriend, Abigail Folger. Mm-hmm. I mean, she had the money for this. The guy also had a chemistry background. Yeah, I just don't think that they were people like that. I just don't think they were like doing that shit. I mean, he's a fucking poet. She's an art history major who liked to play the piano. Okay, well, MDA was found in the systems of both Abigail Folger and Wojtek Frykowski at the time of their autopsies. Yeah, I'm not saying that they definitely didn't party. Everyone partied back then, just like we all partied. But there's a difference between partying and then becoming an insane, like what, Wonderland level of drug dealing, an Eddie Nash level of drug dealing. I don't know if he was Eddie Nash level, but I think he was like, I think he had aspirations. He had... You know, a source of income. He had the knowledge. He also had the suppliers. He's just like, why not? I can go with Jay, hang out with Jay. I have all these celebrities. They're having parties. It's like, you know, why not just show up at one of the parties and be the, the ecstasy dealer? I just, yeah, I just don't get that energy from him. Uh, Los Angeles County Coroner, Dr. Thomas T. Noguchi. Um, yeah, he said toxolo- toxicological examinations of the victims showed that Abigail Folger had 2.4 milligrams of the drug MDA in her bloodstream. Her friend, 37-year-old Polish playboy Wojtek Frykowski, had uh, 0.6 milligrams of MDA in his urine. So it's not not that much at the time. Yeah, she's like, can you imagine how terrifying that will be, though? She's she's obviously kind of- murdered by crazy hippies. Yeah, while you're kind of pretty high on a euphoric drug. Yeah, no, I I couldn't even imagine. Yeah. Um, So here's a couple quotes. Okay. From some famous celebrities- 
from their 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 biographies here um, about the character Jay Sebring. So Jay Sebring, meanwhile, Nicholas Shrek is 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 portraying Jay Sebring and Wojtek as two you know playboys, playboys right. drug dealers, aspiring drug dealers. Um, this is from uh, Why Me, the book by Sammy Davis. Sammy Davis Jr. Sammy Davis Jr. No way. Hello, Sammy Davis yeah. Jr. Um, a Jew, you know. He was a Jew. Just like Jewish you. Satanist. Was he a Satanist? He was too? a Satanist. I yeah. didn't know this. Um, so he was saying how he described, or in the in the book, he describes how he drove to a disco called the Factory. He said, "I wish I could speak like him, but I can't." <laughs> he said that he had a piece of, and he ran into a bunch of young actors that he knew. One of them said to me, "Hey, man, there's a party. You want to go?" Each of them had one fingernail painted red, which is an inside thing among Satanists to identify themselves to each other. Oh, I'm going to start doing that. I kind of want to bring that back. Let's bring it back. The party was in a large old house up in the Hollywood Hills, and they were all wearing hoods and masks. They had a naked girl stretched out and chained to a red velvet-covered altar. Sammy says, I played it cool. Hey, what is this? And they said, we're Satanists. Oh, so this is a coven. They said, right, that chick's going to be sacrificed. And they all started laughing. He said, I'd read enough about it to know that they weren't Satanists. They were bullshit artists. And they'd found an exotic way they could ball each other and have an orgy. Which I think a lot, a lot of that went it's on. A, it's in like the cosplay. 60s and the 70s. It's like cosplay, basically. Yeah, I mean, they would you have... Know, LARPing. Yeah, they would have like something like this as the centerpiece of the party. And it's just an excuse after that and be like, to well, have an she's orgy. naked. Let's all get naked. He said, one of the leaders of this group... Tilted his hood back to show me his face. It was a good friend of mine, Jay Sebring, my barber, who had become famous in Hollywood. I'd always known Jay was a little weird. He had a dungeon in his house. He'd say, you got to come over, man. See what I got downstairs. I got some real antique pieces. I never went there, but we were friends and often went to the same parties. And his old hair studio is really close to where you live. When I came- It's actually right around, the, right around the corner. I've never actually been there. What, to get your hair cut? I've never been there, although JoJo- Banged a girl that uh, a hairstylist that works there. You met off of Tinder. He did. We um, went there the first time I came out. Yeah, we walked by yeah. it. I've never actually got my hair cut there. Um, so there you go. That's Sammy Davis Jr. And then here's Steve McQueen, famous nice. actor Steve McQueen. And this is from uh, from the book Portrait of an American Rebel by uh, Marshall Terrell. Um, so McQueen mentioned the occult in an interview dated October 21st, 1980. This is uh, shortly before he passed away. So uh, in the interview... The interviewer says, there's an area we need to pick up before I forget, because it keeps coming in my mind. At one time, Steve, you went into the occult. Is that right? And McQueen says, I was on the ring of it. Jay Sebring was my best friend. Sharon Tate was a girlfriend of mine. I dated Sharon for a while. I was sure taken care of. My name never got drawn into that mess. Sebring was having an affair with the girlfriend of a warlock. Now, it may be for the worst, but I was always against it. I was one of the ones who felt that I was one of the good guys. But boy, I tell you, they did a number on me. I'm against that whole thing. He says it was the women and the dope and the running around. That's all that was. Um, and, and so the uh, interviewer says, there's women and dope and running around in many circles. That's something that intrigued you. He says, I didn't know it was the occult. It's bullshit. That's what it is. I really didn't know what it was. I mean, and, and by the time I did, I'd never gone to any of those meetings. Never knew anything about it. It was always against it. It was never for me. I highly doubt Sharon Tate was in any form of the occult. I think I could see the cosplay thing, though. 
I can see the cosplay and thing. Think bitch. about Rosemary's Baby just just came out. Oh the, well, yeah. There's the satanic kind of panic thing back then, but Sharon Tate was just a normal. Ordinary I think there's a girl. satanic fascination back then. Maybe, the but panic I, came later. I just don't see Sharon. Sharon Tate's like just kind of a boring person. She's like just I, a beige. Bitch. I think on the periphery, yes, but we don't know what was going on behind closed doors. Also, Jay when- Sebring was a freak. I, I'm going to say he this. He was into some freaky shit. No, and he that's was his into, best friend? He was into kinky sex. That doesn't necessarily mean you're into freaky shit. And again, when's JC Bring supposed to find the time to do all this? Because he's running a fucking, he's starting a business. He's a hairstylist. Those guys party. People that work in the in the hair salon industry, industry. party. Uh, Michael Caine, in his autobiography, recalls meeting Sharon Tate and JC Bring at a party held by Mama Cass. Caine also recalls how Charles Manson and some girls were at this party, indicating the possibility that Manson and his followers might have known Sebring and Tate. There's no hard evidence, and also there's no... Circumstantial. It's circumstantial. You can never cor- like corroborate that, ever. Jim Markham, who, uh, um, who said uh, that uh, Sebring was his mentor, and uh, he was a, an up-and-coming hairstylist that worked for Sebring, I actually kind of took over after Sebring uh, was murdered. Yeah. Um, and he even named his son after Jay Sebring. He claims that the late hairdresser knew Manson and suggests that the murders were the result of a drug deal gone bad. He said, back in 1969, Sebring, Sebring was nicknamed the Candyman and was said to have used his salon to peddle drugs to the stars. Uh-huh. So there you go. And just to further, <laughs> just to further bolster some evidence here, just compounding the evidence... Sebring's own receptionist, Carlene Ann McCaffrey. So the police, they, their second homicide report after they were investigating the tape murders, quotes Sebring's receptionist, Carlene Ann McCaffrey, about how a mafia drug dealer named Joel Rusteau had visited the property on the night of the murders to deal drugs with Sebring and Frykowski. And he was well-known in Hollywood as a big supplier who, J.C. Bring on the Mafia no, guy? Uh, this Mafia guy, Joel okay. Rosso. And actually, he plays a role in the, in, the, in the drug dealings of another small-time drug dealer, Tex Watson. Uh-huh. We'll get to this in oh, a second. This is how it's all coming together. Rosso informed that, um, that he had delivered... Uh, er, Rosso informed McCaffrey, the, uh, the receptionist here, that he had delivered cocaine and mescaline to the house, but that Frykowski and Sebring wanted some additional narcotics, probably MDA or something, and that he had gone back down, down the hill to uh, locate the other narcotics that they were requested, but he did not return to the Tate residence. Everyone says that they were invited to the Tate house that night or that they were going to go to dinner with them, and they declined. Fucking everyone in Hollywood at the time No, but this was this. before. This wasn't on August 9th. Oh, was it not? Yeah, this is, but this was shortly before. Right, right. Uh, McCaffrey said that on August 7th, 1969, she'd talked to Sebring, and he had informed her that he had been burnt on $2,000 worth of bad cocaine. Bit of a drug burn there. Which I imagine must have happened every now and then, especially to these like rich guys. Oh, totally. And you got a mobster? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure they're just like, oh, you know, these guys are marks. McCaffrey said that in her opinion, Sebring said he would do almost anything to get back at the person who had burnt him. What's he going to do? Cut their hair badly? <laughs> Give him a mullet. Um, and here comes your favorite author, Ed Sanders, in his book, The Family. Uh, he details Sebring's violent reprisal against the supplier of the bad cocaine. There was a large party that was held on Cielo Drive at which a person named Billy Doyle 
was whipped as a result of a dope burn involving about $2,000 worth of cocaine. And this, this whipping was perpetrated by none other than Jay Sebring, who was at the affair. Yeah, he was whipped. Yep. Really? Uh-huh. <laughs> Another eyewitness said four days before the murders, 22 people partied over at, uh, at uh, Cielo House. Folger was there, Frykowski was there, and there was a man that was seized, stripped, and tied nude to a post. Folger and Frykowski explained that he was being punished for a $2,000 dope burn, allegedly giving poor quality drugs to Jay Sebring. He was whipped and humiliated throughout an orgy of sex and drugs. So where was Sharon, the very pregnant, nearly nine months pregnant Sharon Tate during this? That's what, was she question. having a lie down or something? Like, no. Maybe, maybe, maybe they were staying at the house because she wasn't always there. She traveled a lot. No, at this point, she was exclusively at the house because she had been in London with Roman, who was filming, and he sent her back. Yeah, but I and think she, she, was annoyed. she stayed with her sisters. She stayed with her family. No, she didn't. She wasn't always at the house. On the, that date, she would have been in Cielo Drive. She would have been there. Four days before? Yeah, she was there. She was nowhere else, dear. Well, she was also kind of frustrated with Vitek and, uh, and uh, Abigail Folger staying there. That's got more to do with Roman. Or might might have to do with their aspirations to be drug dealers. I doubt they were having a satanic fucking orgy when Maybe not a satanic orgy, a but they might have had people coming coming by every now and then to buy some drugs. And I could see her being put off by that. The, well, also the uh, Garretson, the housekeeper, is he corroborating these? Saying, oh yeah, they had wild satanic parties all the time. Well, you know who is corroborating it? Dennis Hopper. <laughs> oh, my God. Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper said... Who was not at all mental. I'm just well, going to put that out there. <laughs> he said they had fallen into sadism, masochism, and bestiality, and they recorded it all on videotape. The LA police told me this. I know that three days before they were killed, 25 people were invited to that house to a mass whipping of a dealer from Sunset Strip who'd given them bad dope. Yeah, he knows this for a fact. Dennis fucking Hopper. If you want to know more about Dennis Hopper, you should read it. I think it's, is it uh, L.A.? Uh, John Gilmore's L.A. book. Because he lived with him. Well, Dennis Hopper is a madman. He's a complete madman. I love yeah, him, but mental he's time. mental. I would have loved to hang out with him. Oh, yeah. Um, years later, Manson family member and convicted murderer Bobby Bill Soleil. My friend. You've done, uh, yeah, you've, you've actually communicated with, tried to get him to come on the show. Well, he did say he would come on the show. Well, he told author Truman, uh, Truman Capote that they burned people on dope deals. Sharon Tate and that gang, they picked up kids on the strip, took them home and whipped them, made movies of it, asked the cops. They found the movies. Not that they'd tell you the truth. How does Bobby know this? Bobby would have been in jail. Um, from this point Bobby I mean Bobby also was on the scene Bobby was well he wasn't as much on the LA scene as he was the San Francisco scene but I mean I'm sure they partied in San Francisco uh, Sharon Tate wouldn't have well Boytek probably did Abigail Folger I'm sure they went they got around up to San Francisco it's like an hour flight yeah maybe well Although initially denied by the police it was later confirmed that remnants of that night's satanic orgy there were leather aprons <laughs> Occult items, drug paraphernalia, some sadomasochistic devices were all found in the loft above Sharon Tate's living room on Cielo Drive. Uh Now, a central player in the uh, drug burn theory here is small-time dealer and Manson family member Charles Tex Watson. I wrote to him once. 
and I just uh, he sent back a genetic because I wrote to all the Manson he's family. Like a, he's like a holy roller now. Yeah, um, the only Manson family member who ever wrote me back was Susan Atkins. I actually put pictures of the letter she sent me on the Patreon, but he sent me back a letter, but it was just a generic mailer. And in my my early twenties, when I'd first moved to London, I was so skin. I fucking I sold it. I had to How sell much it you sell for? It? it was like a hundred and ten quid, something like oh. that. It wasn't. It wasn't it's much. Kind of surprising. Some of the letters are cheap, like. But the one I've got from Susan, because she's written on it, is worth like three, four hundred now. I can I can imagine. And she's dead, obviously. So matures like a fine wine. It does the murder These of letters from serial killers. Uh, so text text was never part of the inside circle romance. Well, that's bullshit because of course he was. I mean, I think he's and he didn't spend a ton of time at the Spawn Ranch. He did. He hung out in L.A. a lot, and he also had a drug dealing career. Maybe. Well, he's never come out and said he had a drug dealing career ever. Well, you know, he seemed charming, seemed charismatic, and he was an attractive look. He was an attractive. He was, guy. and he was charming, yeah. charismatic. He was one of the main people who would pick up chicks to bring back for months, and he spent tons of time on the ranch. He was bullshit. also a violent psychopath, and it seems kind of improbable that he could be pushed around by what five foot two troll Charles Manson. Yeah, but it doesn't matter who can control your mind. It doesn't matter what they look like. I mean, this. He's a college dropout. He was going to be like an all-star pro football player. He's a young man. And I can certainly easily see Manson buggering him and having him as his slave. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I, I wonder. I wonder if he hung out with him just because Manson like, got a lot of chicks. And yeah, he was on the beach, beach boy scene. And like, yeah, there's loads. Of, it's an easy way to live, especially when you're young a lot of drugs and them. despondent. Well, now Tex Watson... Ripped off a black drug dealer and jazz musician named Bernard Lots of Papa Crow. Awesome name. Yeah, great name. Lots of Papa Crow. And a lot of people say this is what precipitated the murders. Uh huh. So he ripped off Lots of Papa for $2,500, which resulted in Manson shooting Bernard Crow in the chest. Yeah, this is in Hella Skelter. Yeah. So now Manson, so what, what ended up happening? Long story short, it's good. I, I was doing research on it. I'm like, God, this is such a long story. But basically, Tex Watson contacted an ex-girlfriend. And he was like, yeah, I want to get some drugs from Joel Rasteau. And he said it was going to cost about $2,500. So he was going to see if she could get the money. Because uh-huh. he knew she had connections. And she was like, well, I know somebody that will front the money. And then you could sell. You could buy the drugs, sell it off, and pay him back and keep the profits. And so Tex had another idea. I'm just going to go get that money and take off and right. fuck that guy. Mm-hmm. So basically, she introduced him to, to Lots of Papa, who was also a jazz musician at the time. The guy played trumpet. Um, and they showed up at, his, at Lots of Papa's house, and Lots of Papa was already skeptical of this guy. Well, you know, he's be. a big guy, also didn't know him, and he was just like, I don't know about this. And, and uh, he, he was just like, yeah, well, give me the money. I'll go do the deal. And he's like, no, you know what? We're going to take this girl that you're with, his ex-girlfriend, that's the promissory note. You don't come back with the money, she's going to get hurt. And Tex Watson was like, fuck her. I don't even give a shit. And so he ends up like going to the house and then just walking around the house, getting in his friend's car and taking off to the spawn ranch with $2,500. Wow. And they waited for him when they realized he was fucking pissed. So lots of Papa ended up making the, the woman like 
contact the Spawn Ranch because she had the number for it. But she didn't call him Tex. She called him Charles. So when Lots of Papa called, he's like, where's Charles? I want to talk to him. They put Charlie Manson on. Oh, my God. And lots no of Papa, jump on the phone. Oh, yeah. And Lots of Papa was furious. He was like, I'm going to come down there with my boys, and we're going to slit the throats of all you filthy hippies unless I get my $2,500. And so Manson was like, you know, we're, we'll, we'll – We'll hook you up. Don't worry. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll take care of this. And so he shows up, and he didn't plan on shooting him. I think he showed up and was like trying to be charming and being like, listen, we'll make a deal. Get, we'll get you your money. It's all fine. No good. sense makes sense, yeah. man. Yeah. But then uh, Lots of Papa was like, no, I want my money now. And so Manson pulled out a gun and shot him in the chest. Do you know what the other funny part about this story is? Is Manson always believed he'd killed him, and he used to boast that he'd killed Lots of Papa, but he hadn't killed but he him. he didn't. And he saw Lots of Papa and was like, holy shit. Well, well, Lots of Papa's friends rushed him to the hospital where he remained for two weeks. And so Manson, the whole time, believed that he'd killed a Black Panther. Yeah, and he used to boast about it. To be yeah, cool. and so, but but he was also kind of freaked out because now he thought the Panthers were going to come for him and his family at the Spawn Ranch. And so, if you think about it, the shooting of Bernard Lanzapapa Crow might be the precipitating incident that led to the uh, the, the the so-called helter skelter murders. Yeah, cause because because of the Black Panthers and in desperation for the money, Charlie wanted to get out. Um, he ordered the murder of a musician named Gary Hinman. Because he believed that Gary had come into an inheritance, had 20K. Yeah. And so he tells Bobby Beausoleil to stage a scene after Gary's death. They end up uh, killing him. Well, Bobby Beausoleil was charged with the murder. And they made it look like black militants committed the crime. But police never drew the comparison. No, they didn't. And, well, police didn't even know that the Tate and the LaBianca murders <laughs> were linked. Which, like, come on. After two, like, bloody... Yeah, they had no, you know, Bobby would have got off free, too. They had no idea that he committed the murder, but he took his car. He I know. Took, he took Gary Hinman's car for a ride up north, pulled over to take a nap, and he got picked up. You can listen to the whole story. What a Bobby. moron. You can listen to that whole story on the Patreon. So he's Bobby. booked and charged with the death of Gary Hinman. Well, now Charlie, Charlie Manson discovers that, and he was like, oh, shit. So that's why he ordered Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, and two others to go to the Sharon Tate's home to make it look like it was a, the Black Panthers did this. Well, he didn't know it was Sharon Tate's home. He thought it was Terry Melcher's home. Yeah. Which we, technically it was. Well. But he didn't know who was we're staying there. thinking he didn't know. <laughs> maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. And he specifically asked Watson to go because of the situation with Lance Papa. He said, you owe us, brother. And he pointed out the time that he and Manson had to clean up Texas messes. All right. So also, another part of Watson's history, he tied up and robbed and shot mafia-connected drug dealer Joe Rusteau. And, uh, and his girlfriend, like, a month before the Lots of Papa thing. To death? What? No, he, he, didn't, he didn't kill him. Right. But Why he, wouldn't But he, he robbed him. But Watson's behavior indicates he obviously was, had his own criminal you know, plans here. And maybe, maybe it was aligned with what Manson wanted him to do. Or maybe he was just like, this guy's, you know, gets me what I need, gives me cover and allows me to further my criminal career. But the incidents, that incident at, with, um, with, uh, with Tex Watson, but also the incidents with, uh, you know, with JC bring and Vikowski, you know, show that things were going down at Cielo Drive. 
Things might have been happening. Maybe that was a, a party house, a well-known party house where people would go, and they know that there's drug dealers there. They know there's money there. And so you have Tex Watson trying to become you know, an up-and-coming drug dealer. Maybe there is a dispute over territory, or maybe Watson's like, fuck them, told Charlie, like, I know these guys have a lot of money. They're rich. Let's rip them off. Well, no, because Charlie Manson knew that house. He'd been up to Cielo Drive. It was Terry Melcher's house. So he doesn't know it as a drug-dealing party house. Well, he, he knows didn't. it as the house of his fucking enemy. He, he didn't, but Terry maybe Melcher. Tex Watson did. Why would Tex Watson assume that? Because Tex Watson is hanging out with drug dealers, trying to be a drug dealer in Hollywood. I don't think so. There's no hard hard evidence of that. And plus, I think Charles Watson, in his quest for God, would have come out and said all of this has happened. He ripped off lots of Papa, who was a big drug dealer for drugs. There's definitely evidence. He may have been ripping off money, but like... But he was doing it to go buy drugs. And then where's, where's the money going back to? It's going back to Charlie, right? No, well, I think he it had he, to go back. To I think Charlie. he gave some of it to Charlie, and they were partying with it. That's that's true. But I mean, it's a credible scenario compared to like a satanic cult or a psyops FBI J Edgar Hoover led operation that there could have been a drug dispute that happened that causes violent behavior. You get the Beausoleil murder. You got the amount of drugs that have been cropping up with the MDA. But the, the thing is that makes you question, and the, the major hole in this theory is, what about the LaBianca murders? Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. And I think when you read Nicholas Shrek's book, that's definitely like the weakest link. Oh, this is when I lose all respect for Nicholas Shrek, because I just feel like he's pissing on the memory of two dead murdered people with these allegations that he comes out with. Well, Okay. This is this is what he claims, and this is what I've done the I've done research, and the research is what I dug up. There seems that there's a possibility Tex Watson was involved in the L.A. wig trade. <laughs> he was. He sold wigs for a period of time. So <laughs> did Jay Sebring, being well, a, hairdresser, know, a hairdresser. That makes sense. And so did Rosemary LaBianca, the LaBianca daughter. If they knew each other, I mean, that it, it, it's it's kind of odd. I mean, that, that's a, a strange coincidence. But more importantly, Joe Dorgan, the man who found Leno and Rosemary's bodies, was the boyfriend of Rosemary's daughter. Yeah. Dorgan was a member of the Straight Satans. Yeah. The biker so was gang Danny that, that, that partied at the Spawn Ranch. You know, and it was also people talk about Linda Kasabian without Danny DiCarlo's testimony. Like he sets up Helter Skelter and talks about the race war too, and without Danny DiCarlo like corroborating that, like the jury might not have believed it. Well, that that is true, but I think I think she was the the bulk of his testimony. I mean, she's a direct witness. Yeah, but so is Danny DiCarlo. Donkey Dick Dan is what they called him <laughs> because he was packing heat. But so anyway, the Straight Satans used to had many dealings with Manson and Watson at the time, and supposedly. The Satans were the reason Manson follower Bobby Beausoleil ended up killing Gary Hinman because mm. there was a batch of bad drugs that he got from Hinman that made several Satans members sick. Apparently. That's what they say. Now, uh, Sh- uh, Shrek's book here also implicates Rosemary LaBianca La herself in this nexus of drug dealing because she would use her wig shop as a front for selling drugs. No. 
Now, she's just a lady. Like, no way. When you look at her, you're like, this just isn't true. But that's the thing. There is no prosecution evidence. There's no police report. So I think that that is the biggest hole in this in this theory. It's like, okay, so sure. You could say Sharon Tate and Sebring and Abigail Folger and, and Wojtek were all involved in some kind of drug partying. We got around to yeah, yeah. we got around to Watson. They were like, Let, yeah, let's go rip them off, and it turned into a brutal murder spree. But, but the, you know, the Biancas, La Biancas, that doesn't make any sense. They're just ordinary people. They weren't even exceptionally wealthy. And there's no motive for Tex Watson to be like, oh, I'm going to take eliminate her from the turf. You know, yeah, it doesn't make sense. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the, how they ended up being murdered. The murders, the murders are brutal. Brutal. Yes. I think we all know this, but we we mainly know everyone always focuses on Sharon or well, Jay. She's pregnant. Yeah, of course. So Roman and Sharon they'd moved to one zero zero five zero Cielo Drive in February of nineteen sixty nine, and within a mo- month, both had left on overseas trips for different film projects. They're busy people. While they were gone, Roman asked his bestie Wojtek to stay at their house, keep an eye on it, and so him and Abigail went to Cielo Drive. The couple remained at the property after Sharon had returned from her Italian film shoot that summer. She was about six months pregnant at the time, and her husband didn't want her to be alone. So he asked Wojtek and Abigail to stay a little while longer, just until mid-August, when Polanski would be coming back home because Sharon was about to drop their baby. Yeah, she was like eight months pregnant at that time. She was pretty much nine months pregnant. On the night of August 8th, 1969, Wojtek was asleep on the sofa of a 10050 Cielo Drive. All-American high school football dropout Charles Tex Watson rudely woke him up with a kick to the head. And the first words that he heard from the six-foot-two dirty hippie was, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. Which is inf- such a great quote. infamous words yeah. now. And this is when the nightmare, the nightmare had begun. Fellow disgusting hippie and murderess Susan Sadie Maglitz Atkins. Um, yeah, you can sign up to the patron to see the love letter that I wrote to her. She went into the bedroom with a knife and she frog marched Abigail, who was in her nightdress, um, Sharon, who was in bed, and her friend and ex fiance JC, bring into the living room. Here, Jay was shot, kicked, and stabbed. He had it easiest. He died with a rope attached to Sharon around his neck. And if you believe what they say about Jay's uh, perchance for kinky sex, he might have been like, ooh. Uh. I, I read that uh, they like kind of like, not hard Yeah, they tied, strung it they over strung the rafters. Them, yeah, strung them over the rafters. And Jay protested and was just like, she's fucking pregnant. Let her sit. Yeah, he was yeah, like, let her let sit her down. Sit, and and he then shot him. he just shot him right there. Yeah, Jay was the first to die. Wojtek and Abigail, they fought hard for their lives. So the killers had tied Wojtek's hands together with a towel. And after stabbing Sharon, Susan approached the frightened pole to then stab him. Wojtek wasn't having it. They got into a struggle. They were rolling around on the floor of the palatial pad. Wojtek pulling out the crazy bitch's hair from the root. And she stabbed him multiple times in the legs. She lost grip of the knife, but soon Tex Watson was there to lend a helping hand. He jumped on top of Wojtek, and he beat him about the head with his gun, breaking up pieces of the grip as he did. And you can see in his autopsy report, Wojtek's autopsy, we were looking at the pictures. Yeah, you can see his head just bashed in. Susan said she had the crack of bones and thought for sure that this guy must be dead. But he wasn't, and she certainly wasn't expecting it when Wojtek just like sprang up to life. He jumped up, he bolted for the door, screaming the whole while. Tex Watson was like hot on his heels. 
He managed to make it across the lawn. He was nearly at the fence when Tex struck him down and he rolled into the bushes. As he stabbed him, Vitek was, was screaming, help me, oh God, help me. Tex helped him by shooting him. He believed that he was dead at this point, so Tex then went to help Patricia Krenwinkel, who had chased Abigail Folger in her white nightdress across the lawn. As her white dress turned red with blood, Tex stabbed her to death, and she moaned, stop, stop, I'm already dead. This is a woman who's, like, high on drugs. I feel so fucking bad for her. Oh, my God, I couldn't even imagine. After Abigail was dead, Wojtek moaned. In Charles Watson's book, Will You Die For Me, which he wrote with uh, the chaplain Ray, that shows what happened to Tex when he went to jail, it was released in 1978. He said Frakowski had somehow managed to drag himself off the porch and he was struggling across the lawn. I rang back to him and once more the mechanical knife that was my arm drove down again and again until my wrist disappeared in the mess. Jesus. So he's just stabbing him with a frenzy. After stabbing him some more, the killers walked towards the gate and then the car where Linda Kasabian was waiting. And as they walked past the body of Wojtek, Tex Watson kicked him in the head and Wojtek fucking moved. He was still alive. But the guy just won't die. He's like Rasputin. <laughs> so Tex stabbed him again until he was certain that the man was dead. Wojtek died with a total of 51 stab wounds, 13 lacerations, and two gunshot wounds. Jesus Christ. The next day, news of the homicide spread quicker than Californian wildfire. The Hollywood lights shone a little faded as the industry's biggest stars reportedly hid away. Mia Farrow, the star of Polanski's hit film Rosemary's Baby, and a friend of Sharon's was too afraid to attend the funeral. Frank Sinatra went into hiding. Tony Bennett moved from a bungalow to an inner suite at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And Steve McQueen uh, began keeping a gun under the front seat of his car. Now, there's, there was hysteria. Oh, I mean, yeah, they, especially and a lot of it was perpetuated by the media. Initially, police had suspected that the murders at the Tate house were a drug deal gone bad. After searching the house, they found small amounts of drugs all over the premises, including uh, in Jay's car. Of course, in Jay's car. But the FBI and the uh, and the L.A. police had evidence for drug dealing at Polanski's property. Um, an, FBI, an FBI report dated the 19th of August refers to the possibility in the police reports after the murder suggest a variety of different drugs were found in Jay's black Porsche parked near the house. These were the drugs found at the scene. One gram of cocaine in Jay's Porsche, 6.3 grams of marijuana, and one two-inch roach, um, also found in the Porsche, uh, 6.9 grams of marijuana in the living room cabinet, 30 grams of hash, in, in uh, Abigail's uh, nightstand, 10 MDA capsules, also in Abigail's nightstand, marijuana residue in ashtray by Sharon's bed. That'll be from Jay because Sharon Tate didn't smoke. Another marijuana cigarette uh, at a desk near the front door and then two marijuana cigarettes in the guest house. There is nothing there that is not is seeing an insane amount of drugs to me. That's all personal use. I mean, 30 grams of hash, you could you get busted for dealing, especially at that time. Yeah, but you can be like, yeah, I'm rich. I can afford to buy 30 grams. 30 grams of hash is not drug dealing. Yep. 30 grams, getting busted with 30 grams, especially if it was if it was all in just one chunk, oh, I could see that. Yeah. But if it was separated, we don't know. And 10, 10 hits, 10 capsules. I mean, at the time, I mean, they're probably making like, what, 10 bucks a pill? Maybe, but that's yeah, personal. But, These but, are rich people. But this might have been this might have been right before they were waiting to get more. Who knows? No, I doubt it. One gram know. of cocaine—that's that's still personal a use. variety of drugs. But that's nothing more than what anyone will take. 
I, I think it's a little more than personal use. I don't. But think then so. again, there were like four people that were there, and who knows? You don't know if they were like buying more. I mean, you don't have ten MDMA pills laying around. No, but I would like to try an MDA. Yeah. Oh, I'd have ten of it lying around if I did. I, I mean, I think it's harder to get MDA than MDA. Yeah, I've never heard of yeah. it. After their autopsy, which we were saying but was performed by the great doctor Thomas Naguchi, uh, both Wojtek and Fol- uh, Folger Abigail were found to have MDA in their bloodstreams, but the crime scene was simply too bloody for a drug bust to make sense. Ultimately, it would be Susan Atkins spilling the beans in prison that led the police back to Manson and the murders. Despite the discovery of the Manson family as the culprits behind the murders, conspiracy theories continued to haunt the deaths of the Manson victims decades after they died. One of them is the theory that Manson was a satanic henchman sent to kill Wojtek and co. in a drug deal gone wrong that we've just covered. Well, everything from devil-worshipping rituals to a stage psyop from the <laughs> FBI have been suggested over the years. But, even a, but if you think about it, a more mundane interpretation of events could be that the murders were just the chaotic consequences of some damaged, drug-addled, petty criminals who were just going to rob some people. Yeah. And it turned into a brutal murder, murder spree. And that's exactly what it was. And Manson will say that himself. Bulosi said that we're in an area of speculation. It's like the JFK assassination. No one comes up with hard evidence. There simply is no hard evidence that drugs were the motive. Maybe Charlie's the only one who really knows what his motives were. As for the suggestion that Manson killed the LaBiancas to cover up the first night's murders, don't forget that he had Susan Atkins put Mr. LaBianca's wallet in a service station in what he thought was, uh, how do you say this? Is this an area? But... But, the, but the, the weird thing about this, it wasn't found for like two months, and it's not even a black community. Linda Kasabian was the one who hid the wallet, and she hid it so it wouldn't be found. But at the time, D, it was the heart of the black community in the valley. You don't know, in the 1969, you don't well, know I, that. Remember, what I've read, Pacoima wasn't a uh, black community, and he just got it wrong. They actually did it in a, um, Silmar anyways, in the hope that a black person would find the wallet, use the credit cards, and then be blamed for the murders. Everything Manson did support what he told his followers, that Helter Skelter was about to begin. And all the members of the Manson's family that were charged with, uh, with murder um, have all given statements to support Bugliosi's Helter Skelter theory of the murders. So everyone that was charged with these crimes supported Bugliosi, except for Manson. Yeah, um, but... <laughs> and the, the, their, you know, their uh, testimony was not exactly consistent or even reliable or trustworthy, but Tex Watson... Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, the others involved in these murders generally tended towards that prosecution story of Bugliosi. Watson has repeatedly stated how Manson gathered the group together on the day of the murders and said, now is the time for Helter Skelter. And the others have given similar accounts. But if you think about it, all of those people directly involved in those killings, it was in their best self-interest to go along with this prosecution case. And I'm sure... They were told this by the prosecution, attempting to, like, you know, by, by saying it wasn't me, we were all brainwashed by this cult leader madman, they would absolve themselves of some of the blame. But they never said that at trial. But Te- I, they, but Tex they Watson went- had a completely separate trial to begin with. Susan Atkins and um, Leslie Van Houten and Patricia Krenwinkel, they never turned against Charlie until years later. But, what they, but they were going with this helter-skelter thing. They are just like, we're in the throes of this guy. 
You because know, this, they were. Well, exactly. But I think that's the, their only hope of ever getting parole was to go along with this. They all said they wanted death. They didn't want parole. They all wanted a death sentence because they would die for Charlie. Because Charlie was their cult leader. I don't know. I think if Watson could make it look like he was brainwashed and committing these murders and that he's a good Christian boy, then he might escape a death sentence. Well, what happened with Tex was obviously very different because he had his own trial and he lost like something crazy. I don't know how many stones he lost. He went in the throes of things pretty quickly after he had escaped back to Texas. So I don't think I've don't think he was there, sat there, not saying anything. If any of them is to be believed, I think it is Tex Watson, even though he is a fucking god nut. I don't know. I think a lot of the testimony is self-serving. And I don't even know how reliable any of those people are, especially Kasabian. Well, I kind She's of... getting full immunity. It's like, sure. She never actually killed anybody, no, though. She She's drove an the accessory. Car. Yeah, but she I'm drove sure the she car would say whatever she wanted. They were both like, nights. you're not going to be charged for any crimes. And these are, these are some serious crimes. But it's not just like, it's not just that they interviewed these five members of the cult. There was a lot of people attached to the that, Maxon that family were really, who were all interviewed, who all corroborated Helter And who were all really scared and probably threatened with like large, large penalties and prison sentences. No, none of them were. I'm, I, you have no idea what people might have said at the time. They wanted to solve this crime. Well, it was, you know, they that was their their main goal is to solve this as quickly as possible. Think of the pressure they're getting from like the 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 DA, the mayor. Yeah, but I, I mean, there's mass hysteria. I don't think Helter Skelter is a crazy, insane theory, but I don't think it was a drug burn, and I don't think it was anything other than Helter Skelter. I just don't think people can believe it because they're like, what? It's not a prosecutor's job to find the truth. It isn't. It's just the prosecutor's job to persuade to the jury. The, yeah, and it's not that evidence. hard to persuade a jury against these crazy people for what happened. Well, So, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm just saying, if any of these theories about these murders are to be, to be believed, I would say the drug theory is as credible as the helter-skelter theory. What really gives the Tate killings such durability is the fact that they are the most bizarre murders in the recorded annals of true. American crime. <laughs> If it had been written as fiction, no one would have read it. It would have seemed too far out, man. After all, the story has just about everything. It's got Beatles lyrics spelled out in blood, quotes from the Bible, and it's all just nice kids from average families being persuaded to go out on horrible killing sprees. Well, that's the thing. Whether you say this, you know, Bugliosi wanted to become a politician and dreamt up this insane helter-skelter theory, or if Manson, that that was the apocalyptic race war was his idealized dream you know it is one of the strangest and just bizarre crime chapter in the in the oh, 20th wow. century yeah. can't really think of anything else that would top this the manson murders sounded the death uh, toll for hippies and all that they symbolically represented they closed an era the 60s the decade of love it ended on that night on 9th of august 1969 and sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction isn't it, it D? <laughs> it's a bizarre story. I'm not saying that I don't believe the helter skelter theory. I'm just, I'm just saying, out it. of all the in, the other insane theories about the the Manson family, the drug burn I think seems the most credible. No, <laughs> I think it's more credible than a psyops operation by J. Edgar. Hoover oh yeah, all this or stuff. a satanic cult. Oh yeah, I don't. I, I think a drug burn could make sense. It's just the Labianca portion that doesn't fit. Yeah. True. Anyway, there's a lot to read about there. I, you know, I don't even know all of our sources. Uh, God, I went to um, one of the sources I had was uh, the Manson family. More to the story by um, H. Allegra Lansing. 
Uh, there are a lot of citations from Will You Die For Me by Charles Watson. Um, and there was that great the article family. about um, Wojtek Krakowski, uh, Playboy. I can't remember where that was from, but that was a great article. And uh, Nicholas uh, uh, Shrek's uh, The Manson File. Ed Sanders, The yeah. Family, John Gilmore. I mean, you can... Chaos by Tom O'Neill. Yeah. Helter Skelter by Bugliosi. There's a lot out there. It's it will a fascinating never end. case. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, it's, you know, it's been, what, over 50 years, 60 years, and Manson's still, you know, the, uh, the, the, the boogeyman. He is. You know, that scares everybody. I mean, still, I, th- I think people will be talking about this, this murder, this Forever. series of murders for decades to yeah. come. We won't, though. <laughs> We're not doing a Manson episode for a while. <laughs> People, um, this is episode uh, 856 here of Sick and Wrong. Got some phone calls coming up next. 323-522-4032 is that number. Or you can email us at sickandwrongpodcast at gmail.com. Before we get to our first call, here's a quick message from Adam and Eve. It's Butt Plug Month on adamandeve.com. Show that you still care by bringing something new into the bedroom. And by something new, I mean a butt plug. Because if you order right now and use coupon code DIDDLE, you get 50% off your first item, a gift so sensual I can't even tell you about it on this podcast that talks about murder and bukkake, and on top of all of that, free shipping. Support Sick and Wrong by supporting our sponsor, adamandeve.com, and making a purchase with coupon code DIDDLE. That's D-I-D-D-L-E. Okay, Rambo, we got a couple calls to get to. Nice. Um, you who called us? I haven't heard from him forever. Waxer. Oh, I love Waxer. Yeah, I love Waxer's voice. Yeah, it's just like proper London. Yeah, where, where's yeah, where, where do you think is where, where's that accent from? I have no idea what part of London is. I'm not that good with London accents, where I'm like, it, it kind of reminds me of almost like a Ray Winston type accent. He's probably not even a Londoner. Yo, yo, yo! What's up, father fuckers? Sick and wrong family, it's Waxer. How you doing? Hope you're all good. So, just thought I'd check in because I haven't spoken to any of you guys for a good while and uh, wanted to just big you up for your continued efforts and magnificent show. DK, you're killing it. Smashing it. Crushing it. (laughs) Crushing it. Anyway, so I was just lying in the bath on an average Saturday night, just minding my own business. I've got a nice cold beer and I've got a little shorty of rum by it, you know, everyone's out. I I'm appreciate ch- men who take baths. Can yeah, I, I was this? about to say, not too many men take baths. I only, I've only ever had one boyfriend who used to take baths and I loved it because we would just take baths together. Not sexy baths, just when you lie in the bath and you just sit and have a wet chat is what we used to say. I don't mind taking a bath with like my my girlfriend or wife or something. I don't mind that, but I just don't have the time to take a bath by myself. I love my favorite thing is reading in the bath. It always has been. You could like I used to like have a one skinner winner and I would demolish a book. I'd be in the bath for like three or four hours. And then you can also wank in the bath, which is amazing because you got the shower head massager. You can't wank in the bath if you're a dude. No, that's pretty gross. Well, yeah, because it, it it's the semen gets into your 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 like hair on your leg. I've done it before. It's it's horrible. No, but we've got the shower head massager. When I discovered that when I was like fifteen, I must have had like nine orgasms in about two hours. And no wonder that's that's why I've never been surprised why women like baths. Yeah, I just feel like with me, it's like I, you know I, I I couldn't as the Brits would say I couldn't be arsed. I'm too busy. I got I, I got things to do. Time is money. Also, how do people? How do you clean your feet in the shower? Because you can only clean your feet in the bath. You're sitting, you're standing in soapy water. Yeah, but like to get a sugar scrub on your foot. How do you do that in the shower? It's impossible. 
I I don't know what a sugar scrub is, but you could just take a fucking piece of soap and wash your feet. Okay, okay, people know what I'm talking about. Not not you who didn't know what overnight oats were. <laughs> What's a sugar scrub? That sounds like some kind of weird British thing. Like that's why your teeth look so bad. That is why our teeth <laughs> look so bad. Rubbing sugar on it, it's like instead of toothpaste. I'm getting ready for bed, mother. <laughs> I'm doing my sugar scrub toothpaste. <laughs> The source of the big, the big book of British smiles. Being, I've had a fucking bitch of a week. Every cunt in this fucking mother has been just moaning about this, that, and a fucking third. I've had personal problems, this, that, and whatever. Right, so fine, okay. It's just been one of those weeks. So I'm laying in the bath, minding my own business. And I'm scrolling through shit online like you do. I'm looking at fucking Netflix and Amazon and all the other bollocks there is to try and find something to make me want to feel alive. And I thought, fuck this shit. So I put the fucking tablet down and I'm laying there and in a moment of clarity, I hear these voices in the street. So the scenario is I live in a nice road, but at the top of our road, there is a tower block uh, of, of flats and the nearest corner shop. For- Wait, he said tower block. Is that like a council home? Yeah, they usually are. He's definitely in London. Is well, it I Greenville? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. What, what does tower block refer to? It's like a tower block of flats. Remember we walked past them in Glasgow and I was like, I, I never have wanted to live in a tower block. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So it's like a high rise. Like a high rise, but usually they're, like, they're not posh. Usually. Although I'm sure you can get fancy posh ones. Tower block. I like tower that. Block. Flats is at the bottom of my road. So you're always getting kids coming up and down. Anyway, so my my van is parked in my driveway. and uh, Do you think he has a van with a mural? I would so hope Waxer has a mural on this van. Of like a unicorn running through a rainbow and it's all like, and there's some stars maybe. I was picturing like a British looking unicorn. Uh, what? So it's got really mangled well, the teeth. The unicorn's Scottish, actually. It is. It? Yeah, it's it's Scottish. A symbol of so Scotland. he probably. So what's the British animal? We have a lion. Like a bulldog. A lion or a, a lion. bulldog? <laughs> really, a bulldog? Yeah, a bulldog. A British bulldog, isn't it? Great wrestler, rest in peace. I could actually see Waxer having a mural of the British bulldog. Yeah, yeah, the wrestler his, striking a pose when he had his little um his little plaits with the beads at the end and his arms outstretched. That's what I'm imagining. Did uh did he fight like did he ever wrestle uh, Hulk Hogan? The bulldog, yeah. British bulldog. Man, that's what I'm picturing. Waxer having a mural of like Hulk Hogan wrestling uh wrestling the British bulldog. I want a van where on one side it's Stone Cold Steve Austin like clanging his beers together. And then on the other side, it's The Rock doing his eyebrow thing. That's what I want for myself. Well, you would be revered in Florida. Everywhere you went, people would be honking and being like, yeah, I'd be America. Like, I'd be like, fuck yeah, fuck. <laughs> Just wait till you learn to drive in, in L.A. In my van. <laughs> in your van. Vans are probably good to drive in L.A. because they're a defensive vehicle. And if anyone smashes into me, who's going to come out better for it? Me, the van. Yeah, they're big cars just laying in the bath just thinking about shit and i hear these fucking kids walk past and the <laughs> the initials on my number plate are kts right so i just hear some voice go oh look kts kill themselves <laughs> and i just thought fucking hell that is just what sick and wrong just i don't know encapsulates it's the it's the humor and the joy in 
celebrating life by laughing at death or some fucking prophetic shit like that. Anyway, that's it. I hope you guys are all good and uh, I love you all very much. Harrison, still, Wackily, all the characters, Epic Fire, everyone from all over the place. You know, love you lots, right? Take it easy. Peace, love, and unity. Waxer definitely gets it. Yeah, he's a good egg. Nah, he, he knows what we're all about. You got to laugh at tragedy. Speaking about tragic ep- comic, about Epic Fire, he was on a, the Discord to voices. Uh, he was like, What's up with that Kiki fellow? Remember, we played that call on the Patreon. Oh, on the Patreon, it was Kiki. Like farted three times is like, take that epic fart. It was like throwing down the gauntlet. He, but yeah, with farts. he was challenging epic farter, and epic farter on the Discord was like, "What's going on here?" I was like, "I think, I think you have to fight each other legally now in a ring." I would prefer not to have to play phone calls of people's farts. You'd prefer not to, but you do on the Patreon. <laughs> no, I do, but I just would prefer not to have a fart feud on the show. It'll be on the patron only. Feuds on patron only. What, nice you, calls like waxes on the real show. Are you going to judge the farts? Like five brown stars for that one. I don't think it's my place to judge farts. <laughs> I feel Epic Farter would be the perfect person to judge farts. No, but he's in the feud. I know he's in the feud. I don't know how this will work itself out, but I hope it ends with like a, a farting slash boxing match in Ireland. What, are they going to eat a lot of beans and then like punch each other and fart? Yeah. Every hit. Maybe a Greg's sausage roll or something like that. (laughs) It is Northern (laughs) Ireland after all. Good to hear your voice, Waxer. Hope you're doing well, man. Keep up the baths. I mean, I love a man who has a bath. Good for you, mate. You know who needs a bath? This next caller. (laughs) Ben. Fuck. Just Jake again. Um, Look at shit on your Patreon or some shit. I don't know. (laughs) Do you think Jizzy Jake takes baths? You know what? I could kind of see a side to Jizzy Jake where he does get all romantic, maybe lights some candles. Every once in a while, I think he has a romantic bath with himself. He puts bubble bath in and every. I think he goes the whole... When Jizzy Jake goes for it, he goes all in. I could see him like putting on, I don't know, like Jimmy Buffett or something and then like smoking a joint and drinking some natty light in the bathtub. Bush light. Yeah. I need a lover with an easy touch. No, I could see that. I could see that going on. Listening so. to 70s ballads. Totally. Kind of has to have a phone, like, up to my face at this point. So I don't look really weird. But, um, man, dude, I was, I've been walking and shit. And, like, I found, like, this dead cat. And, like, <laughs> the dead cat, like, looked so, like, it looked like it had no idea that it was about to die, you know? Wait a second. Is the, did you walk upon a dead cat or did you walk upon a dying cat? Yeah. <laughs> there, there's a It's definitely a difference. Like was it was it still breathing? Did it have a heartbeat? Speaking of dead cats, I was kind of annoyed at myself because I always look for like taxidermy and weird oddities on like Etsy and I w- I just missed somebody selling a mummified house cat. Oh wow, how much? It was like 150. I totally would have paid that. 150 quid for a for a mummified right, house, house cat. cat. And it's like its face still looked really good because you know sometimes when they mummify, they look like really. They just look like you're like, why would you have that? Throw it away. This one still looked really much like a cat. Do you think Chichi would be freaked out? Yeah, because he doesn't like my taxidermy, and I chase him around the house in my taxidermy sometimes. That's what I'm wondering. If he sees a cat, do you think he's like, you know, it's a real, you know, it was a real cat? I think it would be a good introduction to get him used to Caliban. 
Would you, when when Chi-Chi dies, um, obviously not uh, He's not going to die soon. for like another 20 years. Yeah, but when he does, would you consider getting him stuffed? And- taxidermy. I've always thought about this because you've got to go to the right taxidermist to make, but it'll never look like Chi-Chi. It will never look like Chi-Chi, do you know what I mean? Because he's dead. He's gone. Yeah, no, it's he's just dead. His it, fur. It, the body doesn't even look like... The, and the eyes. And so, look at this, yeah. the eyes that, that don't look right. So I was like, would I do him in like a sleeping position? But then it's just like I would have Chi-Chi. I just don't know. And then I think, would I cut off a paw and just keep one of his paws? But then I don't want to do that either. That's kind of weird. You can do that, like a little rabbit's paw I know, that's something. fucking weird. It's like you get this like severed paw from your animal. He's got really cute little paws and know, his, and his beans eyes. are would, different would colors. Would the fur eventually, like, would it be preserved? Yeah, and they preserve it. It's like, have you never had a rabbit? So I had a lucky rabbit's paw key ring for, uh, for years. I actually don't know what happened to that. God, no, I find I'm going to buy odd. another one. No, I remember my ex wanted to uh, taxidermy Hecubus. Oh, and that's where that terrible, uh, the thing that scared, scared everyone. Remember when it you got it out me. for Harrison? No, yes, no, she, well... I was like, no, I'm not going to get him taxidermy. I'm going to get him cremated, and his ashes are fine. I, I don't need to look at, like, a stuffed version of my cat. That's just... It, Especially it, a sphinx. It's unsettling. It's weird. I do wonder how a sphinx would taxidermy as well, because it is just the fur. It's not like they're taxiderming the body. So, like, because they're... There's no fur? Yeah, there's no fur. It's more like a skin. I wonder I wonder if it would look more like, you know, when they taxiderm in, like, a fish or a tortoise or something. Yeah, I don't even know. I think it'd be weird. I think a taxidermist would so love anyway, to do that. So anyway, she like, I mean, she was grieving and she was upset and she like contacted some woman in Russia and she ordered a lifelike replica doll of uh, Hecubus and she paid like a lot of money. It was like 180 bucks. That's mental. I would never have done Yeah, it's that. crazy. And then she forgot about it. I think she was really high. She ordered it, forgot about it. And it took like eight or nine months. To make, yeah. And I don't know. Sent. And then I think she forgot about it. Then one day we get this box from Russia that we had to go pick up at the post office. And she brings it back. I'm like, what the fuck is that? And she pulls it out. I'm like, that is fucking like disturbing. And it, the funniest thing about it is I took it out and I put it on the counter. And Caliban like came in to go get some food. And he looks up and was just like, what the fuck? <laughs> Because, I mean, it kind of looks like him, but it also looks like a cat. And then he was, like, backing up, like, really cautiously. And then I grabbed it and started chasing him around. He was so freaked out. Was he not like, brother, you're back. I've been wondering where you have been, brother. No, it was like seeing your your fucking loved one come back from the pet cemetery. He was freaked out. When you broke up, were you not like, I'm taking that cat? No, I said, I don't want that thing. I said, <laughs> Caliban, <laughs> you can keep the deaf, retarded cat and that fucking weird cat doll. I'm taking Caliban. I kind of want a weird cat doll. <laughs> it's I find him very disturbing. She fucked me up. So I took a stick. <laughs> took a stick. That's what you do. Fucking dug a hole. Wait, you what? take a stick and you poke it? You take a stick. Whenever you encounter a dead animal in the wild, it is a legal obligation that you either poke it with your foot or you get a stick and turn it over. It's a... I think it Wait, is you illegal. turn it over? You turn it over and then Why? all the maggots spill out and you go, gross. Are you, oh, okay. I thought you did it to like for their, for their benefit or something. No, you do it so you can be a looky-loo at death. Well, it sounds like he was taking a hole for it. And buried the cat and shit. He buried I don't even know it. what the cat's name is or anything. Snowy. But, uh, you think he poured out some of his 40? I think you. I think you would have to if you were having a little funeral. Like, this is homie. like Jizzy Jake's day when he's like, "I'm just out 
It's like a country song. I'm just out a walking. I come across a dead animal. I bury it, and then we have a little funeral. It's like a Tom Waits song. Yeah, I could see that, and I could see him pouring out his 40. She was pretty fucked up. It's weird. So, uh, I don't know. There's that. So, anyways, you know, <laughs> I wish I could have had his ashes or some shit, but... <laughs> next time. Know. There's always next time. All right, peace <laughs> up. I like how he's having this, like, uh, you know, this. He's he's questioning his own mortality. I bet since this phone call, he has been questioning his mortality. <laughs> I'm sure you have a lifespan longer than a house cat. Well, big. that's what I'm wondering if he's just like death. It comes in the end for all of us. It's the great equalizer. I hope that when I die, somebody comes across my body and they poke me with a stick and then they turn me over and all the maggots fly out and they go, gross. I think they're going to poke you, but it's not going to be with a stick. I I hope a necrophilia. <laughs> right, this is my new living will. I did a living will last week. This is my living will this week. I hope a necrophiliac comes into like where my autopsy is and they just have a go at me because I'm dead and if it benefits them, fair enough. You know who I hope that necrophiliac is? Jizzy J. Schlitzy. No! <laughs> I hope it's Schlitzy. Anyone but Schlitzy. <laughs> if you found out it was Schlitzy D, then you can sue. No, I'm totally down. I'm going to actually pay Schlitzy <laughs> because, of, because of your stance on necrophilia. I actually think Schlitzy would do it. I think he would too. I think he would. I think he would. Well, you know what? What do I care? I'm dead. If Schlitzy <laughs> wants to come and have a go, come and would have a go. Would you or would you haunt him? Come and have a go if you think you're hard enough, Schlitzy. <laughs> <laughs> Good to hear from you, Jizzy. Jizzy Jake, and I'm glad you buried that cat. You did the right thing. <laughs> a cat funeral. Yeah, I hope you said, like, I don't know, like the Hatsi Kaddish. When you're supposed to say. When Hecubus died, did you have, like, a, a little memorial service room one night? Or we, when I said you got the, the Hatsi When you got the ashes back. Yeah, I said the Kaddish. Yeah, but did you not, like, Even though you're not or? supposed to say it for animals. No, I, I drank some whiskey, hung out with him, said the Hatsi Kaddish, mm-hmm. and I put him, uh, put him in the cabinet where he, where he lives to this day. Yeah, I would like to think that um, Chi-Chi's going to live forever, obviously. But if he was to, something was to befall him, I would have a very much a memorial service for him. I think so. I think I think that's a good thing to do. I remember when uh, our uh, German Shepherd, we had to put a German Shepherd down. He was like 13 years old, Benji. That's a good age for a German Shepherd. Yeah, it was a little too long. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we put him down. My dad had like this tree we like planted a tree in Benji's honor yeah. and said this, like he said those Jewish prayers, the whole family was out there holding hands. That's a nice way to do no, it. I thought so too. I was like, this is very touching. Yeah. Yeah. Who very lives, tender moment. So Benji's, where do, who lives where Benji's buried now? And do Whoever they know? bought that home? I don't know. And they don't know that there's like, that was it a skeleton? That... Ashes? No, no, it was ashes. I remember one of my exes, their family only had German shepherds and they had a succession of them, like maybe eight or nine of them. Best and dogs. Yeah, one of the the dogs, um, this is before I got with the boyfriend, had died. But instead of getting the ashes, they buried them all in their backyard and they had a little pet cemetery out there. Wow, that's kind of creepy. But the guy who would become my boyfriend had to dig the grave for the dog and he said it was pissing it down. There was lightning. But the next day they were going to have, they were going to put the dog in the ground and he was just out there at night like something out the burbs. <laughs> just like, yeah, no, that sounds so he creepy was in their backyard. Yeah, crying because he was like, this is his fucking the grave for his dog. But there was Jesus about nine, nine dogs in their, Nine dog guard. skeletons in their dog backyard. Skeleton. I was, I was always like, "Please, can we just dig one up and?" How get many a skull? baby skeletons? Well, I mean, we're talking about like nowhere Cumbria, so there's definitely a few. At least a couple. Oh yeah. yeah. 
Anyway, people call the Sick Around Hotline, 323-522-4032. If you haven't already signed up for the Patreon, obviously you're missing out on a whole portion of life that you could be taking (laughs) advantage of. Seriously. And we have a Discord. Well, that's the thing. A lot of people question their mortality when they see a dead cat. And it's like, yeah, I think you should. When you realize that you're not on the sick and wrong Patreon, you should be questioning your existence. We also, you should also join the sick and wrong Instagram and TikTok. Fuck that! Just get on the Patreon, <laughs> all right? And and you can get on the Discord from the Patreon. But every week we 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 do a lot of extra content on the on the on the Patreon. You know, one one thing in particular, we do uh, this, an entire second show, so you can get two shows of sick and wrong every week. Um, this week on Second Show, we catch up with special guest Lee Gadsby, who hasn't been on the show for a while. Sophie's favorite. Yeah. Uh, he's he's pitching a new film. He's on his way to L.A. to pitch a new film about drug cartels in Mexico. And he said there's a necrophiliac scene. Did he get that idea from our San Fernando Massacre episode? I think he did. Leander. I don't know. I think he got it from his porn. <laughs> um, or the movie 8mm, maybe. Uh, we also discuss his unhealthy obsession with the film Top Gun Maverick. It was so weird. It's, so he likes it. Really likes it. How many times did you go to the cinema to see it? A lot of times. Like three times at the cinema. You're joking. Yeah. I know he's an old man, but Jesus, get he over really it. He really likes it. And the other thing we were talking about is how many women that he's taken on dates who ordered angel shots at the bar. Oh, I know what an angel shot is. <laughs> you know, I gotta say, more than two. Yeah, because he didn't know. He was just like, yeah, they always order angel shots. And then I never. And I was like, you don't again. know what an angel shot is, do you? It's like you're lucky you're not in prison. <laughs> anyway, um, check it out. That's five dollars. You get the second show, and then for a few bucks more, you get Sick and Wrong Overkill. Uh, this week on Overkill, uh, Kate does her own twist on Sharon Tate's uh, favorite meal. I do. I make it actually appetizing. Bless. It's a weird favorite meal. Sharon Tate, I mean, for a woman her height, she's like ridiculously thin. Well, I think because she eats, what was that, boiled spinach Boiled and spinach bacon? with bacon. That's hot her spinach, favorite meal. A hot spinach salad was her favorite meal. And I, I, I can't eat that, so I've zhuzhed it up. I've zhuzhed it up, it's fucking, It's fucking weird. <laughs> it's weird. Anyway, and at that same level, too, you get access to Sick and Wrong Archives. The first 10 years, a decade of Sick and Wrong, all on SoundCloud Playlist. So sign up today, patreon.com slash sickandwrong. Yeah, keep the show going. We appreciate the support. Also, if you want to get some uh, some Sick and Wrong merch, you want that Sick and Wrong t-shirt you've been saving up for, just go to the Tee Public store, sickandwrongpodcast.com slash shop. Click on the picture of the Pope. Not sure if there's a sale There's a sale on for but if I was But if I was a betting man, I would bet that there is one. <laughs> But yeah, go check it out. And add us on Instagram and TikTok. Ugh. Finally, here's Sick and Wrong <laughs> Song of the Week. Um, so Kate and I, we have a favorite band. Well, not a favorite band, but it's one of our favorite bands. We have many bands. Like, yeah, we have very many bands taste. in common. Like when we yeah. first met, I remember this is one band that we both had in common. Yeah. A Teenage Head. I would say that Canadian first... Ramones. Can it, yeah, definitely. Vancouver's Finest. That first Teenage Head album is just like, it's pop perfection. It's so good. It's yeah. so good. It came out in like, what, 78, 79? 79. Freaking brilliant. But anyway, this past week, Teenage Head founding guitarist Gord Lewis was found dead in his home in an apparent homicide. And police detained his 41-year-old son. Shit. Yeah, I didn't realize second he was so murder. old. Well, I mean, the guy's... Yeah, no, I mean, I know, Gordon but when, Lewis has to be kind of old. I mean, 
been around band in the late 70s? Whenever you read these types of stories where, like, children kill their parents, you always think, oh, they're 17, don't you? You just think, oh, they're young, they've yeah, not resolved it. It's like teenage it. angst or something. As sad as I am about this, I did say, I bet it'll come out in a couple He's of mental. months. He's mental, but his dad might not have been a very nice person. Who knows? Yeah, I don't really know anything about the guy. But uh, so Gord was found. I love the name Gord. Well, it's just Close to Gordy. Yeah. So Gord was found by police in his uh, Hamilton, Ontario apartment on a, well, he lives in an apartment, on August 7th after being alerted by a string of emails from two accounts belonging to a man named Jonathan Lewis. So his son was emailing reporters and media outlets complaining of an unspecified illness and saying that his father was dead. So one of the emails said, I just want to get help for my sickness and give my dad a proper burial. He didn't deserve this. The second email came out on August 7th said, funeral people need to get here real quick. My dad is starting to decay. Well, he'd killed him a couple of days before he was found. That's why I think he's mental. Uh, Yeah, but also, again, I don't know. Let's just wait and see what happens. Well, the body showed, uh, when police arrived, body showed injuries consistent with foul play. And so the 41-year-old son was detained for second-degree murder at the scene. Do you think when the medical people got there, they just turned him over with a stick and all the maggots flew out and they went, gross? Probably. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Gord Lewis founded the punk band uh, Teenage Head in 1975 alongside guitarist Steve Park, vocalist Frankie Venom, and bassist Steve Mahone, and drummer Nick Stepanitz. The group have released eight studio albums, which I had no idea they released that many. Uh, yeah, pretty much I know the first three, and that's it. The first one's my favorite. first one's yeah. one of the greatest albums of all time. But... And it's a great pop-punk record. Uh, and their latest album, or their last album, was uh, Teenage Head with Marky Ramone, which came out in 2008. I do remember that, but that's just because Marky Ramone is just all over social media. You can't, like, everywhere I turn, there's Have Marky you heard Ramone. the record? No, but I just, it's Marky, I was like, oh God, it's Marky Ramone, whatever. <laughs> uh, Gord li- uh, reportedly came up with the group's name, having been inspired by the Flaming Groovies 1971 album, Teenage, Teenage Head, Head, which is a great record too. Also a great band. Anyway, we're going to end the show here with Picture My Face from Teenage Head's self-titled 1979 LP. Um, I imagine his son will be picturing Gord's face. Yeah, and imagine the medical people pictured it when it was all rotten and decayed with maggots. <laughs> Gross. Rest in power, (laughs) Gord. People will be back next week with episode 857. Till then, take a sleazy.
busy Jake learned two things last night. One, don't skip days. Two, cats are fluffy until they're dead. Then they're stiff as a plank. <laughs>